Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Darren Pitt is the Chief Scientific Officer of Visas Nano, a company developing a novel drug device combination to treat issues surrounding cataract surgery, one of the most widely performed procedures in the world. We talked to Darren about what those problems are and what he's learned in his varied career so far. On this episode of Careers in Discovery, I'm joined by Darren Pitt of Visus Nano. Darren, welcome to the show. Hi there, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Great to see you, um, which wasn't a pun, I apologize. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about the work that you're doing. You're, you're working on a, a problem that affects a lot of people at some point in their life, particularly as, as they get older. And um, I know that you're looking at this from a veterinary point of view as well, so a lot of animals as well. Tell us a bit about the work you're doing around cataract patients and and how you're how you're helping them yeah no definitely um so cataracts is the most common surgery performed worldwide okay um, and so as you, as you get older uh you're more likely to get it you can get it at any age you know, as you know um, your children as young as two can have this cataract surgery but obviously it's more common in elderly patients mm-hmm. and it's getting you know more and more uh proliferate sorry because <laughs> of um you know the aging population yeah uh so cataracts is uh it's quite a simple procedure you know once your eye becomes cloudy um you remove that old lens and you put in an acrylic lens mm-hmm. and that is in there for the rest of life and that is the current procedure it's so it's quite quick and easy uh there are some complications associated with it uh and therefore you need a drop regime afterwards and those drops are needed for about a month and the problem with that a lot of the patients like we said are uh, elderly so there's mm. comorbidities, um, you know, arthritis, dementia, and there's lots of health economic problems in terms of you know needing carers to come in and help do these drops. And we know from several studies that um, no one ever does the drop regime perfectly, right? Uh, or, or not even really close to, to, to well actually. Uh, people say they've done it, but they missed it's dripped down the eye. You know how difficult drops can be anyway. Yes. So what we are trying to do is to eliminate the need for drops by having the drugs already. Uh, impregnated on the lens which is transplanted into the eye so that will remove the need for, for the drops and there's several different drops um, that people require initially we're looking at anti-inflammatories mm. uh, and that is if inflammation occurs that results in pain so that's one of the main ones we're targeting to start with and that is required for two two bottles uh, for a month you'll need these drops for so removing that and then long-term plan could potentially be also antibiotics because uh, infection is uh, not particularly common in the Western world, but you know um, if it does occur, you know you'll see your doctor in a couple of days, and they can give give you the strong dose of antibiotics you need. But in uh, rural areas, you mm. know you may not go back for a month, and then you know by that point there's to be really serious complications. So there's long term plans uh, for that as well. And like you mentioned, um, what we kind of discovered on our journey is how it affects animals as well. So there's up to 20,000 um, cataract surgeries on dogs each year, and that's just in the UK. Okay. Uh, and again, you know, people really do love their pets, and you know, it, it can happen quite early in some um, dogs where certain breeds. So, you know, they could be blind for you know, quite, quite a young age. And with dogs and cats, there's additional complications with inflammation. So losing an eye is actually quite common in a dog who has cataracts. Right. Uh, so it's got, basically because the drops, you just can't get the drops in their eyes. As you can imagine it's quite difficult. Yeah. Um, potentially you can leave your dog in the veterinary surgery for a couple of months. So they could have to be done at night as well. Uh, but obviously that's expensive and even then it's not particularly effective. So uh, this could be used to treat animals as well. Um, one of our the people we work with, they've actually done cataracts on animals uh, such as uh, elephants and a penguin as well. It's been done recently. Oh, wow. So, yeah, apparently penguins get it quite often, but uh, okay. So maybe maybe it could be a, a useful treatment for for them as well in the future. I see. Okay, I didn't realize it was the most common surgery in the world. That's yeah. Interesting. So I think in America it's finger and toenail pips it, but I think overall okay. in the world uh, it's yeah, the uh, cataract surgery 
Um, so yeah, no, it's obviously a bit a big problem. Yeah, but like you say, I suppose you know it, there's a lot of practice around doing the surgery, and a lot of the time it's a straightforward procedure. But I suppose it's a very vulnerable part of the body, right? And also a part that people are very um, people get very paranoid about anything to do with their sight, right? For obvious reasons, and and I guess the yeah, impact can be significant. That's it, definitely. I mean, it's not a particularly nice procedure to think about when you do it. Everyone who has it done said actually it was really easy, but yeah. um, you know the thought of having your eye kind of clamped open and you know, having it, it's a surgical procedure. Yeah. So uh, it, is, it can be quite daunting and scary for patients. Although the surgery is quite slick now, obviously, um, been going on for years and years. So it should only take, you know, five to six minutes to actually mm -hmm. do the procedure. Um, like they say, it's the aftercare, which is, which is the, the yeah. big issue. I remember my granddad having it done years ago and he was saying it was just so strange seeing this knife come towards your eye <laughs> and didn't feel anything and it was all fine but it's just such a such a sort of daunting situation <laughs> yeah people are very proud about their eyes you know there's been um studies or surveys done and people you know would you rather lose an arm or a leg or you know vision's always the last you know, no one ever wants to lose their eyesight so it's such an important area to try and to try and do and you know, reduce any complications uh, around that surgery is obviously the, the aim. And, and so then what you're doing is, I, I suppose, I'm simplifying here, so apologies, but um, building a sort of release mechanism that can house the drugs into the lens itself. And I imagine there, there are a lot of scientific challenges around that, not least of which would be size, I expect. Yeah, that's it. It's um, it's been tried yeah there's been a few patterns around since the 90s of people trying to do this uh, mm. impregnating the lens with with the drugs uh, it's getting the release rates correct so you need the dosage yeah. and and the correct time obviously it's quite difficult to get the desired amount on there as well um so that's one challenge just getting the correct release kind of curves and then the next challenge is yeah definitely the engineering challenge on how to attach this onto to lenses already you know could we design our own lens or we're at the moment we're kind of looking at attaching our device onto lenders already out there in the market. So it's yeah, and that will come as a, a civil kind of package lens. But uh, we're not trying to alter the, the the original lens too much. Uh, it's kind of from a business perspective as well. You know, there's, there's that's a medical device in its own right. So mm. kind of trying to reinvent the wheel almost for that to then put our, our device on is tricky. So we're trying to be a bit clever about it and just have an additional step onto an original device. Um, and these things are coming more common now. You see these kind of a, a dual kind of combination products yes. uh, in the market and uh, the FDA starts updating their rules in terms of combination products and that. So it's quite an interesting area to get into. But let's say there's uh, various challenges regulatory-wise, engineering-wise, chemically, you know, so it's uh, quite an interesting area to work in. I can imagine. And in a, in a um, business with so many uh, moving parts and different disciplines interacting, you, you're obviously the chief scientific officer. Tell us a bit about where you spend your time and the things that you're most involved in. Yeah, so originally it was more you know, the feasibility. So could we right. you know, just get the drug releasing? Could we um, you know, attach it correctly to the lenses that are, that are out there? Um, so that was kind of a lot of the wet lab work and that was where I kind of started getting involved and then over time now we're moving more into the design optimization so we're working with companies who can you know make it in better word look prettier but obviously with prettiness comes repeatability right uh, and then also so it's feasible for manufacture you know where I'm making it in the lab and say I'm cutting little parts of the films these mm -hmm. are tiny little things you know it's not not very repeatable whereas we're looking at um, manufacturing techniques such as micro molding where you can you know do hundreds of thousands of these a week uh, which falls in line with you know the lenses they make hundreds of thousands of these lenses a week so yeah. we need to keep up to that scale so now my day to day is more working with these companies with the experience you know um, we're looking at getting a, a, a bioengineer involved uh, to join our team full time uh, who has that experience so I've now moved away from my experience as a chemist uh, and I was working on those kind of drug release profiles. And now we're trying to make a natural product. We're looking, we're working with several partners who, you know, have better experience. And I think that's how it happens. Yeah, as a product evolves and develops, you've got to work with other people and 
Um, and then obviously a part of that is the red blue side of things. You know, we think we could easily just do this. And then someone say, no, no, that's, you can't use that chemical or, or that you can't, it can't be shaped in a certain way because right. that will prevent um, certain tests failing the, the regulatory standards. Uh, even up to like packaging and labeling, you know, things that we don't think about in the lab. You know, now we have to think about, and it's quite good as part of the startup, you get involved in all these conversations, you know, you don't just pack pass it off to the regulatory group and say, this is what we've done. Can you get it up to code? You know, it's kind of a feedback loop with all these different people. So, uh, yeah, that's moving away from the science and more into just the general mm. management, not well, management, so that word, the project management, maybe, but that's kind of with everyone in the company. We all kind of do several roles as sure. a small company, and we are hoping to expand and streamline the process a bit more. And that's kind of where we are as a business, yeah. um, moving from lab scale to to almost a proper company as, as it were. <laughs> <Just putting them laughs> <in the lab. laughs> um, yeah, so no, that's good. So um, the decision was taken that it wasn't feasible to, for you to make them all by hand, I take it. <laughs> no, like that's it. Yeah. And you mentioned there that you, you're a chemist by training. That, that was your initial background and, and that's where you qualified. So, so tell us a bit about, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us a bit about that. So um, tell us a bit about why a career in science? Why chemistry? What what sort of started you off on this path? I mean, I, I wouldn't say there was a, like a moment where I thought, oh, I definitely want to be a scientist or mm-hmm. you know anything like that. I, but I, I did always definitely enjoy science at school. Um, they probably my best subject. Uh, and our school didn't have a sixth form, so I was very much on the apprenticeship. If you go down apprenticeship route, was everyone I knew and worked, you know, had offers to come to work with friends as plumbers and, and whatnot. Mm. But I just enjoyed science, so I did all three sciences at A level, um, and then just kind of picked chemistry again. I had no real plans of doing it long term. I just thought I enjoyed it, um, and you know, I originally from my accent, you can tell, I'm from London, specifically South London. So yeah. I knew a lot of people, or friends and family, who suggested you know get a degree, and then you can go into London and you know retrain as an accountant for the you know the big you know, one of the big fours, or you know. An auditor and chemistry was a good degree. It had logic, mm. had maths. Um, so I just kind of did pick that over the three subjects. Um, uh, went to Loughborough to do to do that, and then almost straight away, really enjoyed really enjoyed it much more than I did at school. You know, right. I enjoyed school, but you know, yeah, I'd never really thought much about it. But as I started doing it in um, university, yeah, I enjoyed that hands-on experience as well as you know the, the kind of the teachings behind it. And then just by chance, I whoops, they did a placement year at GSK. They kind of went around as a, right, yeah. a year in industry. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go through some interviews. Um, and yeah, I got the GSK um, placement. That was at the Harlow site, but I moved mm-hmm. to Stevenage halfway through and uh, did a restructure. And that was obviously a great experience. And I think that's where it cemented it for me is, you know, I was in Big Pharma at the time, but it was just um, uh, yeah, really interesting, you know, working with working in the lab as was as well as you know some desk based stuff it's a good mix you know we wouldn't just yeah there's always a new challenge each day and I really enjoyed that and then when I went back to to Loughborough for my last two years I changed from doing my three-year bachelor's I then did a master's because uh, I was enjoying it thought you know the extra experience was good and then yeah from there I did a PhD down in Southampton um again I wasn't sure that the, there was a the logic behind it in terms of I wanted to go into academia or you know mm-hmm. I just felt it probably potentially is a career move. I don't think maybe I felt that I'd be frustrated if a PhD held me back from, yeah. uh, you know, because I didn't have a PhD. I think at the time I was always thinking, you know, the GSK is big pharma. Um, like I did also did a, my family did a, uh, a project in AstraZeneca. There was an AstraZeneca left at the time. Uh, so again, I had a bit of experience in these, this big pharma world. Yeah, I see. And I thought, get the PhD and go to big pharma was kind of my plan at the time. Right. Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of, I guess, my thinking at the time. Definitely academia wasn't for me. I, I enjoyed the PhD and got paper out there and that was good. But at the uh, then, academia was never really a, a, an option. I think I did like the um, kind of application or seeing a, a goal at the end of a right. project. Um, and that's what my PhD was about, was doing um, kind of drug delivery with, with polymers. So hence, yeah, what I ended up with this was in the end. Yes, uh, but it's always for yeah. I could see see a goal, 
and some academia where you know it's a bit like blue sky thinking you know really early stage which is obviously really important you know those kind of ideas and that kind of mm-hmm. really cutting edge kind of no they just do it for academic interest almost you know eventually turn into feasible products yeah. and so you know, but that's years and years down the line i, I think i work better with that right here's a patient or here's you know in our in our lab actually we had few kind of people of us who work in the hospital, few people work in the engineer department, um, some working with computing. So we very much find an application for a project and then just kind of go with it. So yeah, people working on solar cells and that. So it was quite an interesting lab to work in. We were, we were kind of all focused on one target. But yeah, from then, just um, when I was writing up, I got a uh, placement. Well, it's a, a three-month contract because someone was a um, long-term sick leave. Mm-hmm. And that was a company called Exica. Yes. And they're a contract manufacturer. Um, it used to be an old lab, lab, lab and that was down in Kent. Uh, and again, that's again really enjoyed that large-scale chemistry, but it was for a reason. You know, you had like in two months' time, we need to make this drug because it's getting sent to Japan. And if we yeah. don't make it in two months' time, you're not getting paid. And you know, it's uh, it was really that was good. Yeah, you know, that kind of same thing of there's time limits and mm-hmm. you're doing it for a purpose. You're providing this drug for a customer. Which then you know goes off to help people. So that, that was really good. I uh, really enjoyed that side of things, the manufacturing side. Um, did a bit of mix and match, did some shift work as the chemist there, and did some you know office work. So that was really interesting. And then from there I went to a company called Trinibi, which is chemical um, solvent waste. So again, I really enjoyed that company. That was more of a move because for people management. So oh, okay, I was, yeah, yeah. as kind of the plant manager there um, and helping you know, the Work with the manager who's obviously led at the uh, uh, local steam it was great. We kind of led the shifts and did the you know um, setting up what was being run, you know, what products we needed to get out of the door, and making those plans, mm. you know, and as well as all the safety side and the people management behind that. And again, that was really really interesting and great learning experience because it was quite fast moving, probably fast, yeah. much faster moving than the. Um, chemical manufacturing for you know APIs and drugs. Yeah. Because you know, kind of planned a year ahead, like this is going to come in and you know we need to do all the clean down and that. But with the solvent recycling, it was a much faster turnaround. If someone said um we need this you know product um in in next week, you know, someone would have to source the crude material in, would have to make space on the plants, wash it, clean it, make sure it was up to spec, get it shipped out. You know, there's a lot of logistics work as well and working with the, the sales team. So that was a really busy uh, but interesting kind of time again a bit of wearing many hats as well which is quite quite a good experience yes um so yeah that, that's great but during this time um so my co-founders uh had an idea for the company which is visit Sano now uh they were phds working in southampton so that's kind of where the link was yeah, we never worked together um the white group which worked with the hospital they knew about some of the drug delivery work I was doing. Mm-hmm. But they had this idea. One of our co-founders, Philip, is um, you know, an eye surgeon. He was doing his PhD down at the time. And they did a, uh, a competition to see a theoretical business plan competition. Uh, and they, yeah, they didn't do that well on it. But they come out of it saying, actually, this is a really good idea. Right, yeah. yeah. They, I think they, they wrote for a big accommodating lens and a big up too much. And you know, the business plan wasn't quite right. But from that, he said, actually, we can distill this down. There's a, this problem in cataracts. Mm. Uh, so him and our co-founders, Elodie and Joanna, so they kind of worked. Although they, Philip was an eye surgeon, Joanna was a, neuro, a neurobiologist. They worked in the same office together. Um, yeah. And then they had this idea and just got hold of me and said, hi, we know you're a chemist. Uh, is this <laughs> possible to deliver drugs? I was like, oh, okay, this is a bit weird. Uh, so they got hold of me via Facebook. Right, uh, right, okay. But... I was still going down to Southampton quite a lot to see some friends. So I was like, you know what, I'll pop by the hospital yeah. uh, and say hi. And I was like, okay, this sounds like a potentially good idea. Uh, but yeah, I work with drug in polymers so that we could give this this kind of idea a go. Uh, we won a competition called um, Biostars, which is now Panacea Stars, based out yeah. of Oxford. Uh, and that got us about £30,000 of funding to give this a, a go. So at the time, we only really had a... a um, business plan and you know put some patents in and said yeah this is how we would do it and mm-hmm. a little, maybe a little, little girl in the lab and I think concrete and in that first 30,000 pounds um let's do our initial designs and show actually yes 
we can get attachment, we can get some form of drug release. And then from there, Joanna, who's now our CEO, uh, she joined an incubator. Yeah. We got a bit more funding for £100,000 uh, with the Rebel Bio, which is now Indie Bio and SOSB over in the US. And from that, she kind of developed a business plan a bit better, uh, got some angel investors in, you know, kind of structured just to become a, a real company. Mm-hmm. And that's when I took the leap to leave uh, Tradibi uh, to join full time as the CSO and then start doing you know, the actual work, which led us to get the 30 day kind of release for the drug that we use at the moment, Dexter Zone. Yeah, uh, to get that to a, kind of a, a product feasibility stage, and then since then, that was 2018. Uh, she joined that um, that yeah, incubator, and then since then, we've just been kind of growing and um, mm-hmm. doing yeah, basically getting a from I say from a lab based idea and a lab based kind of very rudimental product into now something which we can start to see you know getting machined and actually turned into an actual real product which we can see going into the ISA. Yeah. That's kind of yeah, the journey, yeah, <laughs> journey from start to finish, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and a couple of things I wanted to explore in that. So, um, one of the things I always notice about the pharmaceutical industry, and I think the same applies to whether it's you know medical devices or, or diagnostics or what have you, is it's quite a it's it's quite a closed door sometimes for people who don't have experience in that industry because because it's so regulated and because it's so specialized. But I think one of the one of the impacts of that, or one of the, the symptoms of that is that you end up with not a hugely diverse range of backgrounds in terms of technical backgrounds. So people tend to come from within the industry and move around within the industry. Now, so you you have that experience and you started out with the pharmaceutical sector and then you went and did something outside of the industry. And as you said, it was slightly different in terms of pace and in terms of sort of the demands on that. Um, do you feel that that couple of years that you spent in solvents has, has sort of influenced how you work now coming back into health and with the things that you took from that? No, definitely. I think that was um, a great experience uh, in terms of you've just got to get on and do it, you know, pick up the phone because it's so fast paced sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just send an email saying, oh, we need, we need this or, you know, um, especially with the lorries, you know, some are already on the road and you know, we're trying to find out where yeah. they are, they can turn time because if they don't turn, if they don't come till tomorrow, you know, we miss the whole night shift of it's some kind of, yeah, we put something else in between and and you also got to think the compatibility of solvents. So if you put one one on one on the plant, you may involve an extra clean down for we've taken another half a day mm-hmm. and then that's X amount of pounds lost. And um because you are working with waste as well, the margins aren't always fantastic um right. so it's also been that kind of not just when i was in the old in the lab set say gsk you know you're making a, a potential product which is going to be a, be a drug but it's not really a, a, a you know you just kind of think i'll make a make these and then someone down the line will say yes this is feasible for a drug you know if it doesn't work you know we all know small molecules fail all the time mm. whereas with the solvent side of things not only you, you're my thinking with the chemistry kind of brain of all this work um, and you know, efficiency kind of brain of how can I do this the best way, uh, but also that business kind of stuff comes into play. So even though it wasn't my kind of area to be involved in this, I would have to think, okay, we need to, if we don't, you know, it's all kind of, it's still financially motivated. Yeah. So that kind of fast pace and that decision-making definitely helps when you go into you know, it's kind of a small company where you end up doing yeah. everything and you know what could potentially be the best route to get to market so uh you know we'll do animal trials and human trials and you, know, you can't do that route because you don't have the money so you have to kind of piece together right. bit by bit if this is the most effective test we can do here so we'll do this test in a uh you know we've got a really good company we work with uh, called obsidics who have a, a really good eye model who um it's a mimics you know, animals really, and humans really well. So it's a lot cheaper. It's really effective. It gives us great data. So we can use that rather mm. than doing animal studies, obviously, which is great because you don't really be doing animal studies. No, sure. But it also kind of shows and validates our point. But at the same time, some people are like, well, that data isn't good enough for me to believe it's going to work. We still need to see this data. But because we've only got X amount in the bank, we've got to take that route and that's the route we plan. And then, you know, then we've got to raise more money and you're as small startups always raise more money. So those 
experience in the deputy assault world helps that because you're always thinking of many different things, not just not focused on one one area, which is great. And like I say, the fast paced nature of you know, calling up, getting things done uh, is one of the really, really useful things as well. Yeah. Um, everything from regulation, even at the moment, my current problem is I'm trying to post something to America, uh, which is you know, chemically, right. um, it could be you know, it's classified as a dangerous good. And yeah, it's just it's just trying to get the correct documentation for someone with no experience is a nightmare. But I just have to get on the phone and call people and like, yeah, oh, and, you know, kind of ask for favors. It's, you know, oh, would you mind sending me the form through? Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, kind of thing. Whereas <laughs> if you send an email, you can go back and forth for days and weeks. Uh, yeah, so I think that was a good good learning curve for me. Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like it's getting you involved in that practical stuff that you like. To do. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting. So you say, you know, that that sort of discipline around how you're using your resources and time and things like that is really useful in a startup company. And I think, you know, it's it, maybe the market is changing a little bit given the economic climate, but I think there's traditionally been so much money in healthcare that sometimes you don't get forced to be super efficient and very lean and, and very effective, but that's always a good discipline to have is, is being more effective, right? <laughs> so um, it's but, good to take that in. No, definitely. I think some of that does come from the, the manufacturing side as well. Mm. But, you know, it's all how to reduce clean down times, how to get much to the plant as possible, how to get the efficiencies and the yields up. Whereas other times in the chemistry lab, you, know, you just want to kind of show feasibility so you don't really care if there's a small wheel because you know that later down the line you can optimize the the, the, the chemical process to you know, increase the yield. So yeah, that's kind of one one thing which definitely helps with the manufacturing side of things as well. That you're always thinking how can do this quicker and better. And you know, with startups, that's sometimes you need that to to beat other potential competition out and you know and make the most effective use of your your finances really. Because yes. it's not with the small, small companies, it always falls down to the finances, really, because um, they, they, they say they go pretty quick. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely, and it's an expensive business. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's really interesting getting that, that people who work working you know, who are our investors, they they understand that you know they're going to give our money now, and they're not going to see any return for years and years. Mm. You know, sometimes we speak to because we med tech or biotech, whatever we get, kind of classify ourselves as. We have spoke to tech investors in the past and they can't believe that you know they're not going to see any returns for years and years yeah. and years uh, if at all because the regulatory can be quite high and there's no guarantee of success uh, so it's quite an interesting area to work in when you work with these people they, they really do understand mm. how this kind of area works compared to some other people who you know, let's say quite not yeah quite, quite naive and blind they really don't understand how long and how difficult some of these processes do take so uh, so it's quite an interesting mix. No, absolutely, absolutely. And there's some pretty sophisticated investors around in the sector now that, that, as you say, do get that. But I think it's it's always been an attractive sector for investors in general. So you do you do have to sort of educate sometimes. I think. Um, and you you've talked about the companies that you'd worked with prior to joining Visas Nano, and that you know they were primarily established companies, right? You, GSK, AstraZeneca, Asica, Tradeby. These these are pretty big uh, established companies, some more than pretty big. Um, was there any nervousness about taking the step into a startup company on your part? Or how did you, well, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe I had a, I guess I've always been a bit of a yes person. So uh, it's, yeah, I think that helps that you just, yeah, we'll work it out later kind of attitude mm -hmm. of most things. So uh, that was probably part of it was my natural kind of tendencies. But when I was at GSK, so obviously it's just a place of year, you know, no, no real importance. Yeah. Um, just you know, just place some experience. The they had a kind of restructuring. So I think I applied, got the got the placement, and then I got like a, an email or letter you know, months later saying, Oh, by the way, you only work at Harlow for a couple of months, but then you got moved to Stevenage. So by this point, I've already looked at houses and stuff. I was like, okay, right, right. Yeah. And then yeah, it's just a restructuring. I don't know if there's many job losses. At the time, but yeah, it's one of those ones where okay, it's kind of it's quite a dynamic environment. And then when I was at uh, AstraZeneca, which is basically my second kind of foray into like the science world, they shut down that site when I was there. So mm. I, was, I finished my placement because it's you know, the 
the time it takes to you know, wind down and move people around and stuff. Yeah. But you know, you, you do get called into a big meeting and everyone's got sad faces, you know, there's potential redundancies and you know, I don't know the, the full outcomes of how it went for everyone and they, they would do or do, do try their best and you know it, it, it happens. But almost the first two jobs I've seen that happen. I see. So okay. yeah, I would say yeah, the loyalty is really extremely important. Um, you know, when that can be you back them and you, you really want to do your best there. But I think sometimes you, you think, you know, I was think I was quite aware that not like my granddad and dad, you, know, you get into mm. a company and then you're there for 40 years, you know, it's quite I don't know there's spells where the big companies, the GSKs are hiring and there's spells when they're you know restructuring moving and then yeah, that's true. later they kind of hire higher level people again it does seem very cyclic. Um which yeah that's 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 great. You know, there's always gonna be highs coming again. Mm. But it you know, it, I think in my head it wasn't like it was hard it was a hard decision definitely to leave um to leave because I enjoyed it there. I said the same actually basically um I think that was a bit of an easier step because I could see it as a career progression, you know, as, yeah. yeah I would have that kind of bit more people management skills. Um so then jumping from that to make the start that was was hard, but I think maybe that early kind of nothing certain, nothing set, kind of um no, it wasn't negative, you know, but yeah, it's a bit of a it was a bit of a shock to see to see that, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I felt a bit a bit more comfortable moving. Uh, one thing I did do actually, um just want to mention was when I did take the leap, I asked to get my MBA paid for through the right. Um, so I think that probably helped push me uh, because, you know, that's kind of in my head like a, have a career progression point. So yeah, I see. I yeah. If I went to Business Nano, and obviously we only had probably a year's worth of money at the time. If after a year, um, we, you know, the technology didn't work, or I had to change jobs again, I would be earning my MBA so I could go back yeah. into industry, go back to company and say, we did this. But here's an MBA, nothing skipped, you know, yeah, another, of course. Another notch on the CV. So I think that was a, a big, um, took, took a bit of weight off because I didn't feel like it was a step back or, a, uh, you know, uh, making a bad move because, you know, mm-hmm. I could always kind of spin that argument to potential new employers that I did it to gain this experience where I hadn't had before. Yeah. So I think actually, actually thinking back now, that probably was another a big step. But um, since moving, you know, it's, it's completely different to anything I could have imagined anything I've done previously and yeah, yeah, yeah. so enjoyable and extremely stressful sometimes yeah, um, so now after a couple of years of doing it it'll be you know if business if we can't get regulatory approval or, or whatnot it'd be very hard to go back into the, the real world yeah. it's, I think the startup life's not the real world so um it'll be interesting how that pans out in the future I think it is. I think when you've had your your sort of taste of, and of course you've got co-founders, right? So there has to be consensus and you have to get agreement from people and things like that. But you do have a lot more influence over what you're doing, right? And how you're doing things and stuff like that. I think once you've you've had an exposure to that, it is very difficult to go back into a corporate environment. Some people can, but I yeah. couldn't do it either. <laughs> That's it, definitely. I mean, there's some, yeah, I say it's pros and cons or anything, you know. Yeah. Um, on the, uh, yeah, Shibi ship work, you know, Oh, end up having late days but once you left it's quite good because you, you know if say the plant was down you've got to have a run again or at least you've had the plan that this is what's going to happen overnight mm. you know I was, I was on call um in case there's any issues but the, the, the shift guys you know been working there years and years they knew better than me half the time of there was an issue on the plant you know they could resolve it so I very much got in the car to drive home and you rarely think about you know there's almost a day's been planned you, you kind of get home mode and you, you know carry on but with startup you're always getting emails and yeah, yeah. especially working with, working with America and you're always kind of thinking in the background I still need to do this I still need to do that and it, it never ends so that's definitely one of the negatives compared yeah. to uh the previous previous roles I had you know um but then like I say the flexibility the travel as well you know I think that's good for all, all science yeah if you, if you do want to become a scientist you know it's universal so there's lots of jobs all over the world um but sometimes may get stuck on certain sites for a little little while mm. whereas yeah you know, with this we you know we got just go to LA quite a bit because there's a big um ophthalmology hub out there so okay see clients there all conferences and that we need to go to so you know ophthalmology based ones you know so we're meeting the people we potentially want to partner with or um you know we need investment from investors at big investment conferences you know 
been all luckily been all over the country. Joe and co-founder, she was out to China for, for a few weeks to um, do some competitions over there. We we won some money um, from uh, some Chinese um, uh, competitions. Got some great experience. Mm-hmm. Met some great people out there. Which yeah, we wouldn't get my old site because it was on the site. All the work right. on that site. Yeah, you know, I might go to a sister site to see to see them and say hi and you know, but that, that's it. You know, this this job you get to do all, all of that, which is you know, it's yeah, also um, quite fun as let's say as a scientist. You might not really get to that roles of BD maybe, mm-hmm. but um, as a typically as a lab based scientist, which I was, you know, you don't get that opportunity, which yeah, I do now. Um, Sometimes it gets a bit much, um, but <laughs> normally it's enjoyable. I have to say, yeah, we're very lucky. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes with it, and I think, um, as you say, the the thing that I think people don't expect about startups is the it's the times when you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're either so excited about some idea that you've had or so worried about something that you can't then go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely, definitely it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I think I get that with the technical stuff sometimes. I know Joe, the CEO, she said someone, and, uh, you know, it's a big relief when you kind of get your next financial block because yeah, you, you've got you kind of yeah. I never plan what I'm gonna do afterwards, but there's definitely times where like actually too much time. I'm not gonna have a job. We don't have enough money in the bank, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and there's obviously irons in the fire. You know, potentially you could get money in here or there, but as you know, some sometimes. Things you think, oh, that's definitely going to work, or we definitely get money from you know, this group or this investor. It falls through. Yes. And other times, you know, a small conversation you think means nothing. They're like, oh, yeah, I know a company which can manufacture that for you. And you're thinking, I've been looking for three months for this. It's been driving me crazy. <laughs> and now we've found an in. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those ones. I think what, what I do find again with startups is the you can sometimes feel like you're banging your head for a wall for months and months and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, everything goes super speed. Mm-hmm. And then again, nothing happens for months and months. Uh, so it's weird compared to a normal job where you know you feel like each day you leave, you feel like you've accomplished something at least. Yeah. Uh, some days you can just go weeks and be like, I'm still no closer to where I need to be. Yeah. And, uh, which obviously again adds to the sleepless nights sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and I always think you mentioned this just now. Um, it's a great time to do an MBA when you're starting a business because you've got so many opportunities to to use the stuff you're learning right and I think sometimes when people do MBAs and they're not involved in a business then it can become quite theoretical but but how's that been for you doing both in parallel yeah no definitely it's, it's great and I mean that's when you said earlier about the flexibility of the, of the startup again that's uh, one thing which was good as well yeah when I had exams on or when I had the reports due you know, I was pretty much like, well, I'm having this week off, you know, whereas in a real job, you've got to take time and book your holiday off and that, you know, uh, so that, that was very nice and, and, and useful. So just from a actual doing it perspective, it was a lot easier with the, yeah. the startup. But no, definitely the practical side definitely come in use. You know, I did a, one of the uh, theoretical projects on a business plan startup mm-hmm. and it was basically called Business Pet and it was Business Nano. Uh, if we just were prep products and how right. we would raise the money for that and how we off sales channels and how that would work, which potentially could be uh, something which we do in the future. You know, mm-hmm. either we license our products off because the company strategy at the moment is very much you know the big fish. Uh, we want to help patients and you know have, have that big market, but there's the potential of the veterinary market and that could be a side product or we could license it to a company and having that kind of on, on paper and how it would work. Um, was great and also it's really easy compared to some other modules I had for MBA because right. I could see that you know what I've done before application and I can take some things back to the company and say oh have you thought about this um so it's definitely worthwhile I'd like, say doing the two things at once um some of the project management parts they do in there uh, or the MBA obviously comes in use and one thing I found interesting which I didn't think I would would be the um kind of is it called a development leadership module Right. Okay. So the first thing before we started was um, doing the kind of Belbin tests and the Myers Briggs mm-hmm. and that. And I was being cynical because I've done them previous places and I've been like, oh, here we go. Yeah, you know, I'm a this type of manager and that's how I work. Right, right, right. But it's completely different to that. It really spent time looking at these tools and how, you know, you're not kind of put in a box. Yeah, you are you effectively in some things you're better at, but then you can learn to be better at other skills and you might not naturally do that but over time you've learned how to do that and you're actually better than that than some of the other 
kind of personality types or skill types, mm-hmm. which I don't think was really explained in other like management courses I've done, you know, three or four day courses. And you kind of do them and at the end, sometimes you, you pitch pick up and there's always good for networking and yeah and stuff like that. So there's, there's a value to them. I don't think they were taught in the way which really I thought oh, these these are yeah a bit of a bit of a jolly kind of thing. Whereas in the end, I'm really surprised and come out how much I thought, oh, actually, maybe I should look to get a mentor and maybe I should try and get a lot of the feedback stuff we did as well, which is um, really good compared to the management ones where they were great for a procedural, like say you had to deal with a bad employee, you know, there's certain boxes you have to tick legally. It was great for that. But then when it's, they try to talk about how to change or change the culture, I didn't feel it was particularly useful then. And maybe that's just because I've been a bit earlier in my career, didn't quite understand how it all worked. Possibly, but in the NBA, yeah. I was really surprised how how that module was, um, was really useful. I think when we try and expand the company, that will come in handy in yeah. terms of building culture from ground up and um, you know how to inspire people and work with people and give feedback when you know things are getting badly and accept feedback as well. You know, um, yeah, which is a big part of uh, startup life is getting knocked back quite a lot, especially for money and you know. <laughs> Uh, and stuff like that. So you do grow it with I think so that's, uh, that's good. So yeah, but, but it's something worthwhile doing. Um I'm glad I did glad I did it definitely. Yeah, and I think those things you're talking about there in terms of you know culture change and and leadership and things like that, they're they're pretty complex topics, right? And they're really nuanced. And I think I do think it's there's a lot of value in formal learning and uh, in courses and things like that to provide the models and that sort of stuff. But it's hard to go on a course and just learn it. I think, you know, being immersed in it is is kind of necessary. And I always think with, with leadership in particular and management, it's one of those things that, it's one of the few things that I think you can't really learn without experience. A lot of things you can, but it's one of those things you just have to go through the cycles several times <laughs> to kind of make mistakes and see what works and what doesn't because because people are all different right what works here won't work there and you've got to learn to read that and i think it's really co- much more complex than people people think 100 yeah, percent, definitely yeah that is really tricky um and so we've not really expanded so i've not really had to put it into practice too much you know uh working with co-founders so maybe mm. that's yeah we pretty much work as a two most of the time then slowly we're getting more and more um people on the team and yeah but obviously a lot of it at the moment we also uh almost like contract out let's say we're working with partners and stuff yeah so really kind of real day-to-day basis is with my co-founders uh so since some of that feedback stuff let's say we really put into practice a bit more uh, to try and read each other but i think it will be interesting yeah if we do expand or do change roles and go back to you know with working with more people um yeah, how, how, what, if I've learned and how those learnings go, you know. I think what, what is good though with the small company, can some of those things I could put in practice straight away. We did right. any procedures or anything like that, you know, so I can just kind of change how we we did things quite easily. Whereas, yes, true. If you're a big company, you know, you may want to instigate change, but it's not always as easy as that. Um, so that's something which I may have to battle again in the future, and never know. So, yeah, it's always evolving, but I agree with you. It's sometimes much easier, it, although, you know, there are challenges with it, it's sometimes much easier to start with a blank piece of paper and design it than to change it, right? Because you've got all these legacy issues and people are people are used to doing things in one way and it's hard to get them to... You can write all the policies you want, but it's hard to get them to actually do the stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, 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 I think there's textbooks and textbooks in there on, on that sort of subject. And yeah. I still I think people agree on, on the best way to do it. So, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And is there anything, um, I'm sure there's a lot that you've learned over the last four years, you know, there, there always will be in, in that phase of a startup particularly, but um, is there anything you feel has been particularly important that you've learned over that time that, um, you know, perhaps if you were doing it again, you'd do differently, or if someone else was about to start out on that journey that you'd advise them on, what what would you share with someone in that position? That's a really good question. I think the definitely in terms of uh, expectations. So you know, we would have like key inflection points, and we you know we would get to them, and then we'd approach you know, investors or you know, uh, advisors that say, "Oh, we've done this step now." And it wouldn't be enough. It'd be, mm. oh, well, why don't you just try doing this or or that? And it's a bit, you know, that's maybe a little bit disheartening. Uh, but I think the learning was kind of 
understanding that a bit more, you know, not taking anything at face value. Um, in some of the work we're doing with people, like, oh, yes, we can do that work, it's fine, no issues. And then when we start working with them, you know, there's always issues in science and complications. Right, yeah. And, you know, we're a bit naive. We set a timeline for this and we set a budget for this. And now the timeline's overrun and the budget's overrun. And yeah. being more aware of that as we start the business thinking, this is how the real world works. Mm-hmm. So, but that naivety certainly comes in the, that comes in handy with, yeah, if we knew how complicated the regulatory hurdles would be, all the legals around it, you know, you almost wouldn't start because you'd be like, there's no way we're going to get this money. There's no way we can hurdle that. There's no way we can convince the FDA this is going to work. Right. You know, you just wouldn't start. But by the time you kind of get a couple of years in, you're so far in, you almost no turning back. So you yeah. say, <laughs> we need to find someone who can make sure that this is going to get through the FDA. Um, so I think it's a bit of both, you know, um, but yeah, maybe I don't know, maybe a quick word for it, but yeah, not taking things at face value is something mm. I think we need to learn, learn a bit more. Um, and I think still are le- learning about. Um, so I think that's that's a bit the big one. And then, um, yeah, I guess obviously hiring and working with the right people is a, it's quite, quite an obvious one, but that's something which, yeah, you've got to get done right. We've had times where we've had to change. Um, you know, change people had consultants only for, for a couple of months right and then you know we've had to change consultants and you know even little things like um bank accounts and that you know we work with the bank which is all the work you know just working and tricky and then swap the accounts to someone else and it's now seamless you know you, you call them up really quick and yeah at the time you think a bank's a bank but you know you got to do all those little, little hurdles um and also understand that when you do work with people not everyone's gonna have the right answer so we've spoken to people ex-fda because we're a drug device combination and some person would be, oh, yeah, you're definitely a drug. This is the route you need to take. And the other person, so no, you're definitely a device. This is the route right. you need to take. And you think, well, both from the FDA, they're both very well-paid consultants, how they got completely different mm-hmm. um, uh, advice. So that even working with these people who are experts, they don't always know either. So if you believe you can get it done, then you've just got to kind of power it through. Because it's always, they can you speak to anyone, they're like, oh, here's where your problem is going to be. They never say, okay, here's how we're going to fix it. They, they see our problem, we go, yeah, that's yeah. going to be hard to get to the FDA. That's going to be hard to get to the So that can be quite disheartening because you're just hearing the reasons why you can't do it. Um, but yeah, everyone comes around in the end and they help us. Yeah, yeah we're, we're still going strong. But I think there are a couple of the, uh, the learnings as well as, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you've got to learn to take a bit of a bit of it on the chin as well because you're going to get a lot of no's <laughs> and a lot of can'ts. So getting that naivety definitely helps because if you just kind of walk into something knowing it's not going to be as hard as it is. Uh, it's great. So, so yeah. No, it's a good point. I think you know, um, there's there's sort of that there's a received wisdom, isn't there? That like you should take your business plan and assume that you're going to make half as much money and everything's going to cost twice as much, and see if it's still a good idea. And I, I personally, I think that's pretty restrictive. I don't know many business plans that could survive that. To be honest, yeah. <laughs> it's, but, um, yeah. but it's like you say, you got to you got to sort of. Um, You've got to commit to the idea, haven't you? And you've got to commit to what you're trying to achieve. And regardless of why people tell you not to do it, or you know, sometimes they can have a good point about how you're doing something or yeah. whatever. But um, you, I think the um, the art of being an entrepreneur is sometimes about you just find a way, just find a way to make it work. That's it. No, it might not be the way you thought you were going to do it, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, things like the wood, but and you change routes that you're not going to do, and yeah. Now with the manufacturing, we've done the same thing. We could do this route is the best way to do it. It's going to work, and then all of a sudden we've changed our approach because you know you got to be that, that, have that flexibility as well. Um, which you know, I think that's why big companies like working with startups because we can do that quite quickly. We can just yeah. go and you know, whereas if you've got big plants and employees working on, the, on a project and it's not working, you know, it's not that easy to quickly change and, and change that. So uh, that's again one of the exciting things things with it but i say it normally costs costs money to do that and then of course yeah. <laughs> then you're back to begging for money again <laughs> yeah no that's it that's it and then so finally uh darren um we are amazingly hurtling towards the end of 2022 and and you know probably starting to think about 2023 as well what what's next for you guys what's next for business nano and what's on the agenda yeah, no, that's it. It's crazy. Um, we it's always maybe look at our timelines, but uh, we're definitely in the right direction. Uh, our big plan now, kind of 
a big inflection point is a first in human trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's probably going to be end of 23, potentially start of 24. Uh, so we're just gearing up for, for that. So uh, that's going to be hopefully 10 patients. Um, and we really stepped into an area, which I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, which is like yeah. saying earlier, the, the recipe side thing. So that's an interesting, a very time consuming area for me and, and the company, you know, trying to get this advice built about what we need to do so that when we do the, this trial, it is obviously safety that always comes first. That's quite an easy one to tick off because, you know, you stick to the rules and that, mm-hmm. that make sure it's safe. So that's what the, one of the easier ones. But the how we get there in terms of the manufacturing, the packaging, and what stage we want to be at, at, at then and getting it done on time. So that's kind of a, what our kind of day-to-day work is at the moment, pushing to that. But our, our big plan is to get to that first human trial and that would be really a great way to show, you know, this is effective. We can yeah. start hopefully making some noise and say, yeah, we've really got a good idea here. Uh, and then that's when we kind of plan to, to raise a, a big bit of money, hopefully, and then start going to the yeah, future trials. Mm. You now we've kind of scoped out what they would look like and how it would work. But I think our, our, our main goal now as a company is to, to get this into humans and, and say, look, we, we, can, we can do this. So um, just trying to make, like, say, make a way to get to that. Yeah, I've given course. myself about a year to do it now. So, yeah, so it's quite scary when you say it's October because yeah, they do, they do. Well, it, it's a, it's an exciting time. It's a crucial time for you. Um, I think it's you know it's it's a really huge problem that you're working on solving, and, and we wish you the best of luck with it. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery. And don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.